This is C-SPAN's The Weekly. I'm Steve Scully in Washington with Dan Balls, who is joining us on the phone. He is the chief correspondent for The Washington Post. And Dan, as we begin the first week of a new month, I'm reminded that the year began with impeachment, the most crowded Democratic field ever, and now a national global pandemic. And it's only early April. And it's only early April. Yeah, Steve, thanks for having me on. Uh, It is remarkable what we have gone through and what we have yet to go through. Um, And obviously, we all know this is going to be long and very painful for the country. Um, Impeachment and the Democratic race seem like they were not just a month or a couple of months ago, but almost years ago. Um, Our focus has changed fundamentally in a very, very short amount of time. I can't recall um, this this kind of thing, maybe 9-11, I mean, which, you know, was a similar kind of total shock to the system. Um, and yet, um, for all of that, the, the disruption to many people's daily lives was different than this is, and this is so, so significant. So um, we, we are, we're just in a, you know, we're in a period that we've not been prepared for and don't quite know um, how it will end and when it will end. And of course, the difference, 9-11 certainly affected the psyche of the country, but this coronavirus pandemic is affecting everyone's lives in one way or another. Yeah, you know, I mean, when you think, I mean, we're all working at home at this point. Um, Most people in the country at this point are under um, recommendations or orders of varying degrees of severity to stay at home to not go to any place other than a grocery store or a pharmacy or um, other essential kinds of things. Um, people are not used to this. Schools are closed. S- small businesses by the you know, hundreds of thousands have been shut down. People's economic security is at risk. Um, and yet the, the fundamental concern of everybody is the health and safety of themselves and their families and friends and neighbors and and with the the new projections of you know even under a, a successful quote unquote effort to mitigate, um, we could have you know a hundred thousand to two hundred and forty thousand people die as a result of this disease. So uh, it, it it it's such a fundamental disruption to the life we have all come to accept as normal in America. And I wonder once we begin to get through this, and I'm not saying, you know, either when that is or or exactly what that means, but that when we begin to get through this, what does normal look like at that point? And I don't think we know. And of course, politics will continue. I want to talk about that in just a moment. But first, for you personally, for your wife, your family, for the Washington Post, how are you dealing with all of this? Well, um, carefully, I would say. Um, the, The Washington Post was pretty proactive about moving us out of the newsroom. We got, a, we got an email on the afternoon of March 10th, which was a primary day, primary contest, that said, um, you know, we want you to go leave the newsroom and work from home until the end of the month, which would have been the end of, which would have been yesterday. Um, <clears throat> and then we got an email last week that said it would be until the end of April. And my guess is that we'll probably get something this month that will say, well, it's going to be extended longer. Um, everybody's taking care of each other. I mean, my wife and I are here. Um, our, our, our son is an adult and lives elsewhere with our daughter-in-law and lovely granddaughter. Um, we are in touch with them on FaceTime and telephone calls. Um, we're emailing with friends. We have, we have some good friends who 
both contracted the disease. They seem to be coming out of it okay, but that was a scary moment for for everybody who knew them. Um, And I think that we're like everybody else. We feel enormously fortunate that we have not gotten the disease. We worry about it every day. My wife, who is a quilter, has been making masks that we can wear when we go outside, and she sent them off to our, you know, our family in, in Wisconsin. And so, um, you know, we're all, we're all changing all our habits, but there's, you know, there's just a tremendous amount of concern. I mean, there's concern, obviously, for everyone's own personal safety, but I think there is a degree of compassion um, for people who are in even more dire circumstances. I mean, when you look at what's going on in New York, you can't help but feel just, you know, great empathy and compassion for, for the experience of people there and, and other parts of the country which are, you know, which are bracing for far worse than they have right now. So um, it's, you know, I, Steve, I'm sure you've never gone through anything close to this. We've, you know, we've read about World War II um, and, the, you know, the sacrifices that people made the lives that were lost, um, but that's a different experience in a pandemic. And frankly, most of us don't have any, we certainly don't have any personal knowledge of the 1918 pandemic and the flu uh, influenza, but um, but we've read very little about it. It's, it's, it's not one of those moments that you study greatly in history. So um, we're just unprepared in all kinds of ways for what we're going through. And of course, for you, Dan Balls, in any other normal presidential election year, very likely you would be in Wisconsin in advance of a primary on Tuesday. That is not the case. You No, and that's, you know, that's certainly one of the hardest aspects of this. Um, um, you're right. Wisconsin has a big primary. It would be, under regular circumstances, a very important primary. Uh, and I would be out there, and I would be trying to talk to voters, and I would be going to the rallies and doing the kinds of normal things that political reporters do in a campaign year. Um, For us now to be locked in our homes and trying to figure out, first of all, whether there will even be a primary next week, because there's been controversy in Wisconsin about whether it should go ahead or not. But but it's a a complex issue, uh, as I've learned in the last couple of days from talking to people out there. Um, But um, this is now this is now normal for Certainly, the rest of the primary season. Um, I'm not sure that by, you know, by June we will be feeling completely safe to travel to states that are going to be holding primaries at that point. Um, and so we're 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 trying to do what we normally do, but we're handicapped. We can't do it in the way we're used to doing it. And so we're trying to think about how you improvise and what are the stories that you write. Um, and and I think in in the immediate moment. Um, we kind of know where the Democratic race is. The former Vice President Biden has uh, a, a nearly insurmountable lead and, and will almost certainly be the Democratic nominee. But Senator Sanders has not yet said he accepts that and is ready to get out. So, But that's, that's a little bit more in limbo. I think the bigger questions are, what happens this summer? Will there be conventions? Um, what happens in the fall? Will, will people feel safe about going to polling places? Those are enormous questions, uh, and we don't yet know the answers. We're talking with Dan Balls. He is the chief correspondent for The Washington Post. And a new poll, again, just one snapshot in the state of the race that was released in late March. Give us your overall sense of the numbers and where it puts President Trump and Vice President Biden. Well, what we found was that uh, when we did the head-to-head test between President Trump and former Vice President Biden, 
we found a closer race than we had found a month ago. Uh, a month ago, uh, Biden had a seven-point lead, and, and in this case, it was with it was a quite narrow lead. Um, I, I think that is understandable for a couple of reasons. One is that the president's overall approval rating is up from what it had been, and that too is not surprising because we're in the middle of a of a national crisis, and there is a normal rallying around a president at a moment like this. We've seen past presidents who both. Both Bush presidencies, um, they saw their approval ratings skyrocket up to 90 um, after 9-11 for George W. Bush and after the end of the Gulf War in 1991 for President H. George H.W. Bush. Um, this president's numbers have not gone up anywhere close to that, but they have still gone up from where he has been. And, and for the first time, we have him at net positive. Um, but I, I think, you know, we, we always call snapshots in time um, and not predictive. And I think that given the environment that we're in, that's all all the more the case. Um, you know, in, in the way that the, our numbers moved in a month, um, in another month or two months or three months, you could see other significant changes. And I don't know in what direction those might go. It certainly would depend on events. But I think that, you know, we've, we've caught a moment. Uh, it is what it is. But I don't think in any way you would, you know, you would say, okay, this is this is in any way a clear predictor of the race. I think both sides are prepared for what will be a very uh, challenging a environment and b very competitive race. Um, we know that there are not that many states, um, unless something dramatic changes, that are likely to be truly competitive. It's a it's a relatively small number, and I think. People have been prepared for that and are continuing to prepare for that. As you know, before the coronavirus pandemic, the president said, you know, you may not like me, but you have to like your 401k. The economy is strong. The Democrats will wreck the economy. That issue right now is essentially off the table. As you look at an unemployment rate that could reach 30 to 35 percent and the stock market at historic lows over the last decade. So where does that put the president when he talks about the economy during this crisis? Well, it robs him of what was the, the 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 most important asset that he had going into the campaign. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of you know clear views about this president on one side or the other, and people many people are locked in. But when you have an economy that was as good as it was prior to this pandemic, um, that's a tremendous um, asset for the incumbent. And in general, it has led to incumbents being reelected in, in those environments. Uh, Trump is in a different place because people, to some extent, set aside some of their views about the economy and his performance on it because they, they either like or dislike him for other reasons. But nonetheless, it takes it away. I think one of the questions, and, and again, it's one of the great unanswerable questions, is let's say the economy you know, has not, well, it, it's not going to have bounced back. To where it was. Um, so we get to November and you've got an economy with a very high unemployment rate, um, the stock market, you know, not in good shape compared to what it had been. Um, that would that would say this is going to be very, very difficult for a president to be reelected. But it's it's also likely that this election will turn less on the state of economy itself and more on kind of judgments on how the president has handled this entire crisis. Um, part of that is economic and part of that is health and safety. Um, and so 
that I think will be be the referendum that we look at in November, the referendum on how has the president done this. Will the country decide that um, his performance overall has not been uh, um, good enough to warrant a second term, or will people say, "Look, we're still we're still in this. The government got off to a bad start, but uh, they did better later, um, and we should not we should not change out the entire top level of our government." when we're still in the middle uh, of a crisis. But let me go back to what the president was saying in January and February, that this was going to wash away, that there were only, what, 12 to 15 cases and that uh, it would, you know, disappear. And then this past week, the president saying he knew all along this was going to be a pandemic. So just on that issue of mixed messages to the American people, how do you think that's going to play out? Well, he will be judged severely on that. Um, and 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 justifiably so. I mean, he 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 underplayed it at the beginning, and now uh, wants people to believe he knew it all along. Um, and yeah, I mean, in his in his uh, press conference on the daily the daily press conference about the uh, from the task force on on Tuesday, he was talking about you know a hundred thousand to two hundred forty thousand deaths. Um, and basically saying, but you know, there were a lot of people saying we shouldn't do anything. Um, that and we and we acted, we moved, but but there were a lot of people saying we shouldn't do anything. Well, I can't remember people not saying saying we shouldn't do anything. So uh, the president has a capacity to to rewrite and revise his own statements and his own history. Um, but the documentation is there, and he will be he will be called on that, and he will be judged on that. Um, but it, let, let's say um, let's say the mitigation efforts um, bring that number of 100 to 240,000 uh, uh, deaths down well below that. Then perhaps people will say, well, they had a terrible start and Trump said things that weren't true and he tried to dismiss it. But in the end, they got their act together. Uh, again, I'm not you know, I'm not trying to predict. I'm just saying that these are these are possible scenarios as, as to it. And then, then the public will have to judge all of that in its totality. I don't think that, I don't think that, a statement at a particular time will form the overall judgment. And frankly, Steve, a lot of people have already made up their mind about this president. We, we've known that that was the case before this pandemic, and and it continues to be the case during the pandemic. I mean, there there are people on both sides of the question of um, should he get a second term or not. Uh, who made up their minds months and months ago. And I don't think there's a lot that will change the minds of most of those, but there are still people who will be on the fence and will be trying to think about, okay, what's what's the best thing for the country? So, Dan Balls, let me put another scenario on the table, and this is based on the evidence that we're seeing right now from the CDC and others, and that is that uh, we are able to mitigate this pandemic and life returns to some sort of normalcy in late May, hypothetically, or early June. Life returns to some sense of normalcy. Baseball is back this summer, but then it comes back in October, early November. How do you think voters react to something like that? Well, I think they could judge that very harshly. And I think it's one of the reasons why uh, getting back to normal um, will be a, a different normal and a slow normal. We will not we will not suddenly get back to what we, we had. You mentioned baseball. I'm a big baseball fan. I love the Washington Nationals. Uh, I would be pleasantly surprised if there is anything approaching a real baseball season this summer. I think that even if, you know, we kind of get to the point where, um, you know, that curve is on the way on the downside, 
that people may be reluctant to go into stadiums and and uh, and be close to a lot of people. So, um, but we, you know, we have we have seen this before. I mean, we we know that the possibility of this coming back is very real. There is no vaccine. There there are no drugs to treat this. And until we have those capabilities, this this virus is going to be around. Um, and you know the scientists can um, can help us understand um, the the limits of our vulnerabilities, but also the realities of those vulnerabilities. So if if we if we lift things too soon, if we try to get back to the old normal too soon, it could come back and it and it just before the election. And and then then you've got two things, Steve. One is you've got this question of how people react, but then you've also got the question of how do you conduct the election, um, and that. That is an enormous issue that, uh, in one place or another, the federal and state governments need to be thinking about and planning for today. And you have to think that our way of life is going to change so much after all of this. We're going to rethink so many factors in our daily lives. Absolutely. You know, this is a life-changing event. Um, You know, we haven't had this for a hundred years. And... You know, there's there's nobody who's prepared for it, and I think that, you know, we're, you know, we're as a country, we're, you know, we we like to be out, we like to be active, we're we're, you know, we're social beings like people everywhere. People want to have those experiences. We want to be able to, you know, give a hug to a friend. Um, we want to be able to go to a restaurant and not be worried. But um, in the back of our minds, until until we believe that this is more or less eradicated. I mean, you know, look, we we get flu shots every year and people still get the flu. It's not as though somebody might not get this, but but to get to that level of safety until we're there, I think that everybody will be very wary about returning to the the, the normal life and we'll do it tentatively. Dan Balls, let me go back to your poll. It was a national survey, but as you well know, this race will be decided in Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan, North Carolina. Florida. What are you seeing in some of these key battleground states, or what will you be looking for in the days and months ahead? Well, I mean, one thing we'll be looking for is whether uh, whether any of those states begin to look different in terms of public attitudes than they did before this crisis. Um, and we won't really know that until later in the summer when, when perhaps people have an opportunity to begin to focus again on, on presidential politics rather than on, on their own safety and their families. Um, and businesses. So um, I, I will I will be looking to see whether I mean, I, Steve, I, I think that there are there are six states and you, you basically mentioned them that are the key to this election. One is Florida. Um, the president won Florida narrowly. The two races that we saw in 2018, the gubernatorial race and the Senate race, were basically less than 1% races. Uh, this is a state that has been very, very close for a very long time. I think at this point, even before the, certainly before the crisis, you would have given a slight edge to the president, but not not anything in which he could take it comfortably or that the Democrats wouldn't compete. Um, but... Um, so that's one state that's enormously important, and particularly for the president, because those electoral votes, that's a big number of electoral votes. The Democrats, uh, if they don't have Florida, need to win those three northern states, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Michigan. Um, 
I would think at this point that Michigan of those three is probably a little better for the Democrats or was before the pandemic. Again, we'll see what happens with you know, because they're going through some things in Detroit and, you know, it's unpredictable. But I think that that if you rank those three, that would probably be the, the, the best of the three for the Democrats, but still very, very competitive. Pennsylvania will be competitive. Wisconsin, to me, has always been the make or break state. Um, it's the toughest for the Democrats, and if you need all three of those, um, then you know they have to have Wisconsin. And Wisconsin is is a bit older, uh, not by a lot, but a bit older than those other states. It's a it's a little bit whiter, uh, it's a little bit more rural, and all of those factors work in favor of the president. Um, it was terribly close in uh, 2016, and and will be again. Now then you add in North Carolina and Arizona. Um, North Carolina, the Democrats won in 2008, but then lost it in uh, Obama's re-election, and Trump won it again in 2016. Um, as we know, North Carolina is, is just a, you know, a cauldron of political turmoil and controversy. Um, that's going to be a, a battleground. Again, the question is whether the Democrats can bring it back into their column. That's a big challenge. Arizona might be a slightly better bet. It's a it's a state we've always thought of as you know much redder than you know than these others we're talking about, um, but it's a changing state. And um, what's going on in and around the Phoenix area, which is of course the the, the gigantic population center of the state, uh, is that it's moved in the direction of the Democrats. If the Democrats were to lose Wisconsin, but win Pen- uh, win Pennsylvania, Michigan, and add uh, Arizona, then you've compensated for the loss of Wisconsin. So those are the those to me are the six states. There are a few other states that people will talk about. Uh, the Trump campaign will go after Minnesota legitimately. It was very tight the last time. Uh, it's a little bit like Wisconsin. Um, the the Trump team will go after New Hampshire. Um, it doesn't have a lot of electoral votes, but we know that every electoral vote matters in, in times like um, these. Exactly. Um, the Democrats talk about Georgia. I think that's a bit more of a stretch. And, and you know, Texas is always the, out there on the horizon for Democrats. But the investment that it would require is something that you wouldn't you wouldn't do <clears throat> before you tried to do it. Others. So, Dan Balls, one personal question. You are a best-selling author. As this campaign wraps up, do you have an, another book in you? Steve, I don't know. I mean, given given what we're in the middle of, I don't know quite what that book would look like at this point. Um, I, I was not planning a 2016 book. I keep thinking about another book that tries to be, you know, with a little bit longer time horizon than just the campaign. Um, and I haven't I haven't found the the answer to that. Um, I know if I were working on a 2016 book, I would be kind of tearing my hair out right now thinking about how you essentially. Re- rework the entirety of that book, um, and and then how do you report it? <laughs> because uh, reporting a book like that requires a lot of face-to-face interviews, and it requires a lot of traveling around and being out. So um, I I am I, I I feel lucky that I don't have a 2016 book in contract, but um, I'd like to do another book. I just haven't quite figured out what the right one is. We always appreciate your keen insights and your perspective. Dan Balls, chief correspondent for The Washington Post, his work available online and in the newspaper. We thank you for being with us. Steve, thank you. It's always fun to be with you.
And a reminder, you can find The Weekly on our website at cspen.org slash podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. And be sure to rate and review us. We look forward to getting your comments and feedback. I'm Steve Scully in Washington with Dan Balls of The Washington Post. We thank you for being with us. 